Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Larray Cantley. And I'm Bill Lance. Thanks for sticking with us through a little bit of a break that we took to welcome the newest member of the Housing Justice LA family, my son, Henry, who was born on Valentine's Day. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We are starting today with a personal story from Anthony Haynes. Hi, I'm Anthony Haynes. I grew up in Carson, California, and I have five siblings, and I grew up with a mother and a father in the home, a beautiful, diverse neighborhood, after-school programs, summer camp, and all of that. As I got older, my neighborhood slowly started changing. My parents tried to shelter me from what was around the corner. All good things wasn't around the corner. So for a long time, I was able to avoid going around the corner till one evening I was able to stay out late after the streetlights came on and I went around the corner to see what was the big thing about around that corner. What was the attraction? And when I went around, there was a different group of people doing different things, drinking and smoking marijuana and gambling. And I've been sheltered from that part for so long that it drew me in because I wanted to fit in. I never really fitted in the family. So I was attracted to that. So I wanted to hang out and be around them. I started smoking cigarettes first. Then I started drinking, smoking marijuana. And that carried on for a while. One evening, I went out with friends to a club and I was like 13 going on 14. And I was able to get in this club. In this club, I was able to have a drink. But a little bit before that, I had a part-time job, and this was at a golf course. I went out that Friday night, started drinking, and I came home Saturday morning. I was supposed to be at work at 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I'm just getting in around 8. I tried to get into bed and go to sleep. So my mother come in the room, and she smells the alcohol, and she starts ranting, you smell like a brewery, what's wrong with you, you're not an adult, get up and go to work. I said, no, I'm not going to work today because I had a hangover, didn't feel like it, I just want to go to sleep at this point. So I pulled a blanket over my head and she snatched the blanket off of me. She said, get up, you want to act like an adult, you want to be a man? A man drink and go to work, take care of business. So we went back and forth for a little bit and finally I jumped up, I see she wasn't going to let me get no rest. So I jump out of the bed. I said, I'll show you I am a man. I am a man. So I grabbed my backpack, and I wanted to grab my G.I. Joe, but that wasn't manly. So I just threw a couple of clothes in the backpack, and I left. Caught myself running away from home. So I went two blocks over to a friend's house. That was like the beginning of all negative things, really, in my life. That was my first bad choice, wanting to be an adult and caught myself running away from home. I stayed with a friend for a while. That began my couch surfing, actually, and I was still going to school because I really enjoyed school. But part of not fitting in was it wasn't cool to be a nerd at that time. So I hid that part that I really liked school. I didn't want the cool kids to know I really liked school because <laughs> it wasn't cool. I was still in the neighborhood, and my siblings would see me. They would tell me, you need to go talk to mama. Mama's looking for you. She want to know how you doing. I said, no, 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 no. 
I ended up with a, a female friend of mine. She was older than me, and she had her own apartment. I became her babysitter, and my mother didn't like that. My mother was waiting on me to come back home any day now. You know, I done threw my tantrum and been out there, but I didn't come back. My pride wouldn't let me go back home for some reason, you know. So that was um, the beginning of my journey into being an adult at the age of 14. And it was really hard. So after living with my female friend for a while, a relationship started forming. And one day she came home and asked me for money on some groceries. I'm like, groceries? I'm the babysitter. But after we crossed that line, I'm no longer the babysitter. Now I'm the stepfather, you know. That's not what I wanted. So that ended, and I ended up just staying with other friends, couch surfing for a long time. And I kept going to school, and I dropped out of school. I made it to the 12th grade, and right after the first semester, I dropped out just for no reason at all. I was able to always get in the job, hold an apartment, but at the same time, the disease is growing. I would get into wonderful relationships, but throughout my whole life, I was always under the influence of something. I was maintaining. See, my way of being a, an adult was to bring the check home and just hand it to her so she can do everything. It wasn't about me learning how to balance a checkbook and pay this bill and that bill. I just give it to her, and I felt like I did my part, you know, because that was part of what I seen my father do. He didn't like for my mother to work, so he just gave her to bring home the paycheck, you know, so that's what I thought I would do. The relationship I was in, I stayed in that first relationship for like 10 years. She was a great person, but I didn't want to be a good man. I wanted to cheat. And that's what I did for a long time. I thought it was something wrong with me because every relationship I got into, I would cheat. I thought I was really ill. I thought I had a medical condition to where I couldn't stop. I had no reason to cheat because I had the perfect woman at home. She worked. She would come home, cook a meal every day. It was like you see on TV, draw my bath water, give me a massage, have me a beer. I sit in the recliner, take my boots off. Perfect woman. But I, I just couldn't stop. So time goes by, and my addiction is steady growing. Now I'm introduced to cocaine. Now everything is out the window. I can no longer hold a job no more. I don't want to pay the full rent no more. I don't want to pay the full bill. I want to just put a little here, here, here so I can get high. In my mind, I said I started off couch surfing, so I'm going to go back to couch surfing. So I stayed with this sister, that sister, until they, they can no longer tolerate me. See, we grew up as a tight-knit family, so they felt they was obligated to give me a chance to stay with them until I burned that bridge. And that's what happened. I took advantage of each family member, and I burned every bridge until they said, okay, you got to go. Until they no longer wanted to be bothered with me, and I ended up on Skid Row. And when I got to Skid Row, it was so scary because they was burning fires in the middle of the road. Uh, it looked like that movie Road Warrior, just every man for himself. And my first thought was, okay, this is not for me. This is not how I was raised. This is an embarrassment to my family. So this is a good time to get my act together and get out of here because Skid Row is not for me. 
And then I took that first drink and the first hit on Skid Row, and I looked around. I said, oh, it's not that bad. So my addiction, my run, went another 10 years on Skid Row of being homelessness, you know. During my addiction, I didn't realize all of the resources that was around me. I was getting high and sleeping in front of these buildings and places, and I never knew what was inside the place. Never stuck my head in, never asked for help or nothing, but my rescue came by way of jail. I went to jail for a year for possession of marijuana that's now legal. So they wanted to send me to the penitentiary. I'd never been to the penitentiary before. Because the first time they caught me with some marijuana, put me on probation. Second time they caught me, they gave me work release program. Third time, now they want to send me to the penitentiary. But I'm like 40-something years old, and I can't start going to penitentiary. So I fought the case for a whole year. They wanted to give me a sales case and send me to the penitentiary. After a year of fighting it in jail, I went to recovery meetings that people come and do panels, and I started going to there. First, I just started to just, I wanted to get out of the cell, so I'm just go, just to be going. But little did I know a seed was being planted. And I know I didn't want to get out of jail and go back to that vicious cycle of how I was living. Because it wasn't really living, it was just surviving. I was surviving out there. I was never living. So I used to pray every day and night for God to take me and change me. And that was my prayer for dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that's my truth. I'd rather have died in jail than to get out with the same mentality. And the whole time I was in jail, like I said, I burned all my bridges with nobody except a phone call from me or anything. So around the eighth month of me being in there, my oldest sister, she accepted a collect call, and it was like Christmas Eve, and I broke down crying because I was just happy to have outside human contact with someone I know. And uh, a friend did write me a letter, one letter since I've been in there, and I read that letter every day, and every day I seen something new in that letter. A one-page letter, but it read like a good book every day. So she answered the phone. My sister answered that collect call, and and there are steps in the rooms of recovery, and I started making amends. Before I even knew anything about a step, I I was doing everything because it was on my heart. I knew what I did to her. I know how good she's been to me. I apologized for everything I'd done. I admitted to things she didn't know I did. Next thing you know, they started putting money on my books so I could have commissary. So a year go by, and the DA, they changed DAs. So they just told me, if you just cop to the sales, you can get out. I said, all right, well, enough is enough. I did it. So they let me out, and my sister told me that I could stay with her until I find a place. But she said, if I even think you're getting high again, you're getting the hell out of my house. I said, well, what if I'm not getting high, but you think I'm getting high? She said, you're getting the hell out of my house. (laughs) So since I had a place to stay at that time, I took that moment to get on the wait list with Skid Row Housing Trust. You had to go check in once a week to let them know that you're still interested. So I did that every week. Whatever they wanted me to do, go get a TV test, go get a a new income verification. I did it, whatever they asked. I didn't hang out with old friends or none of that. I just went from point A to point B. Uh, a few months go by, and Skid Row Housing Trust called me, told me to come do a building interview. They gave me a tour of the building. They told me if I wanted it, I could have it. I wanted it. I wanted something different. When I first, they gave me the keys, and I went in, 
I just dropped to my knees because it was a brand new feeling that I never felt before. And on top of all of that, this is the first time I had my own place where I was sober. I promised God that I was going to change and then to myself that I was going to do whatever it takes to keep this apartment and not go back to being homeless because death was around the corner. I didn't even realize I had mental health issues until I got sober because I was seeing things out on the streets, fights and stabbings. You you see all of this and and you don't think it's, it's really taking a toll on you. But when you get somewhere quiet by yourself, the visions come and you realize, wow, what did I just witness? All of that came flooding in. When I moved into my apartment, mental health showed up, depression and all of that, and I didn't understand what it was. But the building I moved in was so perfect for me because they had medical right downstairs, therapists, psychiatrists. All the services I need was in this one building. If my medical appointment was at 8 o'clock, I rolled out of bed like 7.45, and, and it was so perfect for me. It was everything I needed, and it made me want to continue growing. Along with having medical in the building with the perfect staff, they had a whole bunch of groups that was going on in the building, like a book club. They had yoga, art group, art journal. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm from the streets. I'm not I'm not going to sit in no circle and share my feelings. I mean, that don't make no sense. But then when I get to my room, I'm like, you're just going to do the opposite of everything that you used to do. So I'm like, damn. Each group I went to, I would just sit there because you don't have to participate. They just want you to come. In the art groups, I make little whatever they was making at the time. But in the self-help groups, I wouldn't share. I would just check in, and I wouldn't say nothing for a long time. I want to talk, but I don't know these people. I'm not used to sharing my feelings, so I'm holding all of this in. One time, I just shared a little bit, and then it was like a floodgate. Everything I was feeling just... I wouldn't shut up. They were like, Anthony, you uh, let someone else share now. But I just wanted to go on and on and on and on because I had all of this that I had to get out, wanted to get out, but didn't know where to share it at. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to the next group and I'm going to share some more. That's how my journey started within the trust is going to group after group after group after group. And then they had this knitting class. And I went to this knitting class for like a year and a half. It was, the guy was the instructor, but it's all women, and they would go turn on Oprah with their snacks, and they would sit and teach each other how to knit and all of that. And I went to this class for like a year and a half. I never learned to knit, but I got so much out of that group. I sat with this bunch of women that taught me how not to care what no one think about me. And I got so much from these women that, it was never about me learning how to knit. It was just me learning how to sit still and talk to people about positive things and, and how to share my feelings and, and what I'm feeling. Because in my addiction, my feelings was all over the place. I was crying when I was supposed to be laughing and laughing when I was supposed to be crying. So I had to be rewired. As I continued going to all these groups and working with my therapist, the staff seen a change in me. They seen how I started talking and walking, and, and my recovery got stronger. I started facilitating. First, I started going to this AA meeting in my building, and then I started facilitating it, and I facilitated to this day. It's like in recovery. Who's better to help an alcoholic 
then another alcoholic. They can show you how to walk because they've been there and done that. So they the trust figure, who better to help someone just coming into housing than someone that's already been through it. And it was so important because I wish I had an advocate when I moved in because no one told me I was going to feel lonely. No one told me the four walls are going to close in. Normally, when I feel like that, I resort back to what I know, and that's drinking and drugging and no good people. They offered me the job, and I said, well, I don't want a job. But then they told me what I was going to be doing, just assisting people to the DMV or to the DPS service building, Social Security building, escorting someone somewhere. I said, okay, well, that feel like being a service. That don't feel like a job. They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, I'll do it. But once it starts feeling like a job, I'm going to quit because I don't want a job. As time goes, I sit around and I start making files, putting files together, filing them away, you know, um, doing little typing here and there, doing extra just to keep myself busy. And where we was all at, there's an office just going to waste with a computer and a phone in it. And they say, Anthony, why don't you start going in there and using the computer? I'm like, hold up. They gave me an email address. I'm like, wait a minute. This is a job. And what it was was fear. It was fear of sitting in front of a computer and not knowing what to do with it. So I learned the basics, and next thing you know, I was doing so much more. Today I am actually... The peer advocate supervisor. And it's a small team, but our goal is to have one advocate in every building. The trust have 26 buildings, and we want one advocate because we're stretched thin right now. I still love what I do. I didn't even plan on being an advocate. I thought I would just get sober and eventually go back to being a welder. But I've been selfish my whole life. So this is my way of giving back. And I still stay in the same building. Uh, been thinking about moving out. But I do enjoy being down there on Skid Row. And where I stay, it's a home. This job is forever given. And I just celebrated December made 12 years for me clean and sober. Like I say, my last 12 years of homelessness and doing drugs was on Skid Row. And by me still being on Skid Row, they get to see this clean side of me. And I'm like a light. I get to be hope to someone else. And then when they move in the building, they're like, oh, I remember you. And I'm like, yeah, you're, so you know it can be done if you remember me out there because I didn't see no way out. We are very grateful to Anthony for sharing his story with us. Today's episode is about what's being done to address homelessness in Los Angeles. We're excited to have an interview with Chris Coe. Chris is the Managing Director for Homelessness and Strategic Initiatives at the United Way of Greater Los Angeles. The United Way has been extremely influential in Los Angeles on homeless policy and continues to be deeply involved with the implementation of programs to address homelessness. They also run the Everyone In campaign, which is a massive public education effort about homelessness. Hello, Chris. Hello. Thank you for being here and being a part of our Housing Justice LA podcast. Very honored. So we're going to get right into things. Can you tell us about yourself and about your family and where you grew up? I was born in Korea. Um, I grew up 
a few different places, but grew up mostly in Richmond, Virginia. We were an immigrant family, and my mother and father had different jobs. At first, he was a janitor. My mom was a seamstress at a um, dry cleaners and alterations. Um, later, my my father became a pastor of an immigrant church. Richmond, Virginia is interesting because it's the capital of the Confederacy. And Richmond is a couple hours south of D.C. And so there are not many Asian people in Richmond. So it's kind of in between the black and white situation in Richmond. And very much in between starting out at an all-black school um, where I was physically beat on the playground kind of daily. And then at an all-white school later... Um, where it was more kind of a verbal assault. And then I came back at a kind of mixed school and got to be in the middle of that. So kind of seeing all of that, I think this work of social justice, this work of housing and homelessness was not something I grew up being like, oh, this is something I'm going to fix. This is something I'm going to work on. It was something more that I wanted to achieve or escape. Having grown up in apartments the whole time, I remember deeply wanting a home with stairs like that was that was my like it's like man I was so jealous of people with stairs like to be able to like run up and down stairs and I know that's here you can have a home without stairs and in Richmond and Virginia there's a like if you had a home basically you had stairs and and that meant so much to me and so I went to school and just wanted to be a manager who made enough money to have a home with stairs. <laughs> that was my dream. And then kind of came out of college with a very different dream about housing and this world that exists all around us. Um, coming out here to work for Mayor Viragosa on work around the unbanked situation and helping people enter the financial mainstream. So it was something that I've been lucky to be able to be a part of. I was not that like 80-year-old kid being like, this is something I'm going to do and work on. It's something I, I found myself catching up to and inspired by and feeling very lucky to be a part of. And how did you make your way to the United Way of Greater LA? Oh my gosh. When I was at the mayor's office, they were uh, the partner across the table. They were, uh, the fancy term is fiscal agent. What that means is they were the, our nonprofit through which we accepted donations through which we kind of worked more quickly. Uh, Bill Pitkin, who is also a friend of this work was one of my main partners across the table. I had no idea what United Way did. Years later, when I was starting up a nonprofit and doing consulting work, they called back to ask me to, to help out on a project I had started there. And so I came here just to help, you know, to help finish out this thing that I'd been passionate about that I wanted to see the finish of. And while I was here, I met Christine Margiata, who was starting up the work on homelessness here. And she was unlike anyone I'd met in terms of having bosses. She was my client at the time, but it was more her than anything else that made me consider this work. Because at first I was like, man, I want to work with her. By that point, I'd given up on this idea of having bosses like that. And so meeting her, I was just so captivated um, to be able to work with her. And she asked me to stay on. Even with all that, I said no a couple of times <laughs> um, because it hadn't been my plan originally. But the more I thought about it, even then, and especially now, this work around housing felt like a movement that was coming together. 
because I had worked on education, I had worked on savings and all of those issues, and all of those places it felt like we were all kind of scrapping and disconnected and everything. But even then, it felt like it was kind of coming together. The Obama administration, they were talking about it at a federal level. And the city and the county were starting to come together at this level. And you just don't, you don't see that much. There's usually kind of people in different places. But it was all kind of coming together. And so at the very end of it, it was, I kind of had two choices. Like do my own thing and lead my own thing or or be in service of this bigger thing that's happening. And ultimately, I chose the latter. And you didn't ask me this, but just to keep going, there's one, one funny story is that even when I was saying yes, I didn't know what I was saying yes to. I remember like two weeks in, I went into Christine's office and I, and I said, you know, when you say ending homelessness, you don't actually mean that, right? <laughs> it's like, we're not, we're not actually doing this thing. And she looked at me just dead eye straight on. She's like, oh, we're doing, we're, mm-hmm. we're doing this. And I was like, huh, tell me more, you know? So that was the start of my own journey on, on really diving in. Yeah. Ending homelessness. Yes. Can you tell us more about the Home for Good and what that initiative is? Sure. How it got started. Yeah, it got started, again, a little bit accidentally. Um, There's a a lot of different ways to talk about the start. It started because United Way at that time was trying to focus this work from being just kind of broad-based. If you've ever played Monopoly, there's a community chess piece on Monopoly. That's actually what United Way used to be called for a long time, which meant we collect all these donations, put it in a chest, and kind of give it all away, and then years into that agencies were like the money you're giving us money for we need more than money to achieve and what else can you do to help that cause and that got us to narrow in into three issue areas this was with basic needs elise fought our ceo fought for there to be a homelessness mention um at that time i think the staff here felt like it was unsolvable intractable so you know why even touch it but she just felt like it was such an issue in la we need to at least do something there. So that got it on the board. And then Homewalk, which has become this rally moment for LA. And, and now after the DC walk went away, the, the nation's largest event on homelessness, we copied that from DC because one of our board members went to DC. They were having this walk and, and we asked ourselves, why aren't we having this walk? And then when we said, okay, let's do it. Then we said, will anyone come? <laughs> will any? Because this was back in 2007. So we held our breasts, had it. 3,000 people came, which was probably 2,000 more than we thought would come. And now we had people, and beyond coming, they said, we want to do something about it with our money. So now we had money. So like, how do we use that money well? So that got onto, uh, us into that pathway of it. And at that time, there are a lot of reasons, but a lot of the public um, entities at that time couldn't kind of sign up to that highest goal of ending homelessness. So there's this kind of vacuum there. So we just said yes, and that started our journey. Again, we didn't know what we were getting into at that point. It was more of, of course, we have to answer this call. Of course, we had to try. So it started as an effort to end chronic and veteran homelessness in L.A. in five years because we felt like L.A. didn't have the attention span for 10 And then I'd say from that, what we do now, I describe our work, we're a change multiplier. We help multiply change. We help efforts start faster, grow bigger, um, and last longer. So that's kind of what we do. We partner with people and institutions who are trying to do amazing things. And 
and we help those things be better in those ways. I was at that first home walk and oh remember it fondly. One of those 3,000 yes. people was pregnant with my kids oh, at the wow. time, my twins. Wow. Um, so yeah, I remember that home walk well. Mm. Um, what and how, when you came, what do you remember your expectations being and, and coming into that? Yeah, I remember that same feeling of yeah. like, is anybody going to come? Like, do people in LA care about homelessness? Yeah. Um, and people did mm. care about homelessness. And I think it was also, there weren't that many opportunities mm. to bring elected officials together. Mm. Um, so the fact that Mayor Viragosa was at that first walk yeah. was a big deal. Mm. Um, I think some county supervisors yeah. were at the first walk. And, yeah. so and it's a sort of, young Mark Ridley Thomas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it was good. Younger. How about let's go younger? It's still young. Still young. Still young. Yeah. So yeah, that was uh, yeah. that. I mean, it's great to see something that you know started with such a sort of humble effort. Mm. Um, what are your numbers now at Homewalk? Yeah, we're now at ten thousand this year, aiming for fifteen, <laughs> and then now with the launch of Everyone In, I think we have over a hundred thousand people have signed up to be advocates there. So I think in the future we want that to be the rally point. So we're thinking, how do we get to the tens of thousands? But yeah, we've gone from three thousand to over ten. Do you want to make a plug for when the next home walk sure. is? I feel like I should let you, you know, get your pitch oh, wow. in. So it's Saturday, May 30th, the weekend after Memorial Day. So come together. It's a great moment for people who have been in the work and for people who are just finding out about the work. And I think we pride ourselves on it being a very inclusive walk. You have CEOs and you have people for whom this is more than just a statistic. It's their story. You have children. That's one of my favorite part is people who do this work bring their kids to see what they do and the people they work with. So it is definitely an all-comers event. One of the things we've talked about in some earlier episodes of the podcast yeah. is how there was really an inflection point in LA in 2014, 2015. Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk about your experience working on Home for Good at that mm. moment and what happened to really change the political will around mm. the issue of homelessness? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'd say it continues now. It's kind of the next wave, which is why I'm so excited about all of your housing justice work. What we learned earlier, and I think we came from the place like some people that said, hey, we just need to make things more efficient. Everything's out there. We have the resources we need. We just need to make it more efficient. So we plugged away for the first few years of Home for Good, trying to articulate a common goal, a clear understanding, common systems to really prioritize resources better, take LA, which was kind of a patchwork quilt, and make sure every community had a lead uh, that was taking responsibility over ending homelessness. We did all that, and the homeless count went up. <laughs> And um, not in an insignificant way. And so we had this goal of ending homelessness. We had done all this work, and yet we see those numbers. So we had to ask ourselves the hard question. It's like, what's happening here? What are we not doing? At that point, when I started looking at the numbers, to me, it was clear that we were just working at such a small scale. You know, we were feeling great about 500 vouchers, feeling tremendous about 1,000. And then when I lined up all the numbers and looked over the years, it was like we would win 500 vouchers this one year. And then I saw the number for that category go down by 500 in a year or two. And so I was like, oh my gosh, it really does relate. Like this really is 
connected to housing resources for people. Housing really does end homelessness. So when I was lining that up, I was like, if that's true, then like, why are we only asking for a thousand? You know, like we need to work for this on the order of 10,000, you know, and hundred million plus versus just millions here and there. Um, that was happening at the same time that homelessness was becoming way more visible outside. I think people psychologically always thought LA is the homeless capital, but if you weren't going in and out through downtown, you weren't seeing it. But even when I, I remember at that point I was living out in the Roland Heights area and even there I started seeing it pop up on like the sides of the road and and so you just started seeing our homeless neighbors in ways we should have been seeing them all along because we were protecting rights, you know, and we were allowing them to to be protected more. Um, and homelessness was actually spreading on top of that. So that really set the scene for homelessness becoming a top issue for people in L.A., where it's, you know, it was always traffic before and education, another issue United Way had been working on. And suddenly you started seeing homelessness climb in people's consciousness. Um, so that gave the window. And then, so we had the need that we saw through the numbers. And then we had the the public kind of demand for solutions growing. We work and support advocacy organizations as partners, as funded partners. Um, we're proud to do that work. And I remember over time feeling like, what would it be like if we did something together? And I also remember we also get a lot of requests to sign on to stuff. And, you know, all the time we're asked to sign on to something where it's like, this is pretty good, but not exactly what we would have written. And so um, one of the years we were talking with the Conrad and Hilton Foundation, one of our, I mean, they made all of our work possible. And we're like, we want to do something that stitches them all together, the advocacy organizations and so we put clauses in that said, we don't know what it is or when it will be, but when the time comes, do you agree to work together on some big thing? And that started there. And in the middle of that work, all of this started happening, the homeless count, the visibility that I'm talking about. And so we kind of nervously wrote our first letter that said we want more than $100 million on this issue. And I remember feeling, we all felt like, look at us being bold. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, it felt like a leap for us to put that on paper. But we, that year, we took it to Homewalk, got a thousand signatures. Um, and then our public officials started uh, having the same rally cry. You know, we saw elected leaders in the city and the county calling this a crisis and emergency. And, and they started declaring as much. And then they started putting their money behind it. Um, so showing up with those letters saying, absolutely this is a crisis and not only one-time funds but we need real sustained resources to really chip away at it and now we're in another version of that you know we we did that so take that as kind of as a snapshot to the things we had done in the first few years because the homeless system has grown tremendously you know our exits and outflow from homelessness has grown tremendously and yet the homeless count right and that's gotten us to look at it again and what does that mean and and that's, again, the moment we're in, and, and our thinking is growing yet again in response to that. Chris, one of the yeah. things United Way was working on that I feel like is really mysterious and confusing mm. to people <laughs> oh um, during those years was the what work on the this? coordinated entry oh, system, yeah. which yeah. you personally were mm -hmm. deeply involved in. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's complicated, yeah. but can you say a little bit about 
why United Way wanted to bring coordinated entry to Los Angeles and what on earth CES, the acronym for coordinated entry, means. I mean, first, apologies on the name. Why have one complicated word when you can have three and put them together? So the coordinated entry system, or CES, a couple purposes, a few purposes. Um, I think the main one was that we wanted people experiencing homelessness. I mean, it is so hard already. We wanted as much as we could to make it easier in the sense of taking away the psychological stress of, am I on all of the lists? Like, have I put my name down for all of the housing that I have access to? How do we make it so that when you put your name down on one, that you've put your name down on all of them? If you're in one area of town, you don't have a fundamentally different chance at getting housed than being in another area of town. Because at that point, it was kind of like you either meet a great case manager or you have such great resilience and you're able to go to all these places to put yourself on the list. And so a lot of our friends outside, you know, they're looking for someone that, that you can trust. You know, someone you think cares about you, who will listen to you, who's responsive to you. They're not thinking like how many housing resources that agency has. And, and so we wanted to make sure that you could work with who you wanted to work with and trust who you trust, but that you had access to all of the housing resources, um, no matter where you were. I think on the other side, we wanted to demonstrate to the wider world what the actual need for housing was and how many people actually wanted to move inside. You know, So there's all these anecdotal stories and you had all these contracts between programs and the highest performing programs, but there wasn't this bigger snapshot of what's happening in the area and in the region um, and what the actual housing needs were beyond one type of housing and across them. So that was another purpose. We wanted all of that in one place um, and secure. And another one for me personally was that wanted communities wherever they were in the city to be able to get involved on this issue on homelessness. Because um, before it's like, if you don't set up your own homeless program again, you have no shot at helping someone in your community um, find their way home. So if you have the coordinated entry system, technically wherever you are in the city, you can enter and as a group um, in your neighborhood, you're able to work towards helping someone access housing. So that was the final thing is how do we how do we open this up and allow cities, places, agencies, friends without organizational infrastructure still um, be engaged on this issue. And do you want to just talk about the core components sure. like universal assessment yes. matching to housing resources? Yeah. So at the end of the day, a lot of people talk about CES and they talk about the VI spadat, right? If CES wasn't complicated enough, then you have the VI spadat. That is the common universal assessment that everyone gets. So the coordinate entry system has a few components. It has a network of entry points throughout the county. So it has a door, a front door, so to speak, in various parts and various places. When you get there, it has a common assessment now that no matter where you go, it's the same assessment, again, for fairness and to have a comprehensive set of questions. So you get one assessment that the answers from that should carry over to other places. And what that's testing for is that assessment assumes that everyone is ready for housing, 
and that everyone can make it for housing. It's just like what kind of housing and what kind of supports do you need to be successful? So that's what that test for. And um, I think it's important, I'll just point it out now, that that test can be improved, can be switched out, should be improved, should be worked on, should be made fairer and better and all of those things. Um, so CES does not equal the VSPDI we have right now. It just means that everyone uh, has a common assessment that can be specialized in other things as we need it to be. And then there's a common database so that all of those things are put in the same place and that exchange can happen. So on the back end, so all the needs are put in one place and on the other side, all the housing is put in one place. And then from there, the coordinate entry system was also the start of new positions we have. So it also features shared positions so that it's not just your agency who has to provide a social worker or someone to help. Each area can have shared housing navigators, shared housing locators, regional coordinators, re retention specialists, all these people who are helping um, support our friends who are going through the coordinate entry system. And that those regional shared structures are also part of the coordinated entry system too. So it's technology, it's processes, but it's also the people that now are spread out throughout the county. Something to, to say more specifically what I meant by covering it. One year when we were building out the coordinated entry system, we said we wanted to do a dartboard test. So we said, when we throw up a dart on a map of LA County, whatever's under that tip, we want there to be someone in charge of that area. Um, and we are giving grants to each area to make sure all eight regions of the county were covered by these coordinated entry system lead agencies who were then tasked not just being successful on their own, but part of their success was activating and working with all of the groups ending homelessness in that area. So coordinated entry system is very much also about collaboration and a spirit of working together. I recall when the ballots were brought out for HHH yeah. and being that advocate that was like hitting the streets and telling mm. folks, you should sign on to this. And they're like, why? Mm. They've never cared before and mm. nothing's going to happen. And mm. then I remember when it passed and I was like so mm. excited. I'm like, mm. this is the first time this like mm. dollars that are mandated to yeah. address homelessness in this fashion. Mm. And I'd like to hear more from you. of How is HHH working? <laughs> what a great question. What a loaded question. How is HHH working? It's working. <laughs> is you it, might want to add a little... Um, what is it? What is it? Yeah, there you go. Not Thank everyone you. follows the acronyms. That's right. Yeah. So Proposition HHH. Not intentional, but all ballot measures are assigned letters, three in the city. So it was a city of Los Angeles ballot measure to bring $1.2 billion to help the city over 10 years build 10,000 units of supportive housing, which is a special kind of housing that we have set aside for people who need long-term care and support. And how is it going? So we are just on the cusp of a lot of Triple H units coming online. All of the money right now is actually fully accounted for, which means that all $1.2 billion have commitments right now to build units. Right now, we're about in total over that span of time, we're looking at about 8,000 units. So we're trying to keep marching on to see what other sources we can do to get to the 10,000. Right now, we're in this period where we're waiting for a lot of those units to open. So a lot of that, you'll, you'll start seeing 
a lot of those units come online in 2021. At the end of this year, in 2021, you'll see this massive spike, um, which will mean thousands of places for people to come inside. I think at the end of last year, what's also happened, though, that we're trying to fix is how do we make these places open even faster and how do we make them more affordable to build while not sacrificing quality? So at the very end of Triple H, something that the city did was an innovation around to get the number that a lot of people talk about, the half million dollars that it costs to build a unit of supportive housing. There's a lot of models now that are looking at two, $300,000 per unit, um, which also, to be clear, is not what the city's paying per unit. That's what it costs. The city is paying, even in the $500,000 mode, it was paying about $100,000, $150,000 a unit. But the most important thing, the reason why I felt so confident in fighting for Triple H is that, yes, there will be ways for it to be better. Um, there may be ways it's worse than we want, but it will still mean thousands of homes for people. And even if that's slower, we don't get it immediately right, those units are around for 50-plus years. These will, Once they're built, there will be things that are out here that will always be special places for people who don't have the same chances in the the other market. They will be places for people to go. And in the housing justice work around redlining, these are places we are claiming back in communities. Like These are places we have reserved and saying people who have been discriminated against and have had no other place to go. Like We are making homes and making sure that they have places to go in thousands of them. So I'm proud of the work that's happening on Triple H. Um, we just need more of it. And then we have the Measure H. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we brought that about and people were like, more? Yeah. They're going to tax us more? I remember making calls, phone banking at the AFL-CIO. I'm phone banking and folks are like, are you guys asking for more of our money to go into this? And I'm like, yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, and we are. Yeah. it's going to benefit. Mm. Uh, would you mind sharing more with us about the Measure H and yeah, how it's working. Absolutely. So Triple H was in the city of Los Angeles, uh, which is only one of 88 cities in the county of Los Angeles. It's a major part, but there is still a lot of the county out there. And so Measure H was a quarter cent sales tax to bring us the services and the resources we have been missing in LA for so, so long. I mean, a lot of people ask, What's New York doing that LA's not? New York's spending billions of dollars on homelessness every year and housing. That's the difference. And so LA, this was about stepping up our local investment to $355 million plus per year. Now it's even beyond $400 million because of what the sales tax has brought in. And that's for, you know, Triple H is for the outside, for the shell and for all of that. Um, and H is really the software inside to make that work. It's all the supports to help people get there and all the services to help people thrive there. To make houses feel like home, to help people while they're still outside have dignified, um, to stay as safe and warm as possible while they're outside and to have people to let them know they're not forgotten. So the outreach force that has multiplied to help people know they're not forgotten in the meantime, um, to really activate the county's incredible health resources and to bring them to the streets in mass in a serious way, um, and to work on prevention, which is 
I alluded to later, but really the next place we have to go in a serious way. Um, the federal money, I don't think people realize we weren't allowed to spend them on prevention because our crisis outside was so serious. So the federal rule is like if you have it at a certain level, you can't spend it upstream. But Measure H, um, it's our money, so we wanted to test that upstream. So it it allows us to do that. And specifically, we said if nothing else, it's going to help us bring 45,000 people home. So Measure H does that. It means that 45,000 people um, who don't have a place to call home today through the course of the first five years will have a place to call home. So it's a 10-year sales tax for us to showcase why this is a worthwhile investment. So the ballot measures are doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Triple H is building housing. Measure yeah. H is funding this incredible amount of services, mm -hmm. touching tens of thousands of people a year and helping mm -hmm. them get off the streets. I think for the general public, what they really struggle with yeah. is how is it that we're investing hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. and yet our homeless count continues to go up? Yes. I know that's like the $64 million question, yes. Yes. Um, but I'm curious, how do you answer that question when people ask you, why are we investing these dollars and seeing the numbers continue to increase? Yeah, look, I've asked myself the same question. You know, I think all of us in this room are frustrated by that same thing uh, because that's why we're in it. We don't want to see anyone outside. What I would say simply is that um, more people are becoming homeless than ever before. You know, what's changed in the last three years, the last two years, what changed in the last year? Because we had the homeless count actually start going down, what changed in the last year or two is that LA's economy has actually started picking up. It's growing stronger, but it's only growing stronger for a small group of people. It's only growing stronger for a select group of people. And that's actually pushing a lot of other people down into homelessness. So even in our parking lot here, sometimes when I leave work, I'll see people um, who have to sleep outside at night and as much as I can or they're willing, I'll, I'll say hello and, and see how they're doing. And um, one gentleman, you know, just like, hey, how, how long have you been outside? It's like, you know, six, three, six months. It's like, what's, you know, what's going on? How did that happen? And he's saying he was living around here and we're right now we're around Staples Center in the South Park area of downtown. And he was living in like a $900 apartment in this area. He has SSI's fixed income, so he's making, you know, like $1,100 a month, $1,200 a month, but just enough to afford that apartment. And this area started picking up, so that apartment became a $1,300 apartment, a $1,500 apartment, and he just couldn't afford it anymore. And he's on the street, and I'm talking to him. So that's happening thousands of times over. So we're, I'm sure you'll hear it from other people on the podcast, but... We actually have 133 people who are uh, coming home every day, but we have 150 people a day. That's, you know, we talk a lot about how we build, you know, shelters to help everyone get off the street immediately. The real crisis is the two shelters worth of people becoming homeless every day. So we could build a shelter to shelter everyone today, and tomorrow we'd have to build two more. And the next day after that, we'd have to build two more. That's the crisis. It's the tsunami of people becoming homeless, which ironically has a lot to do with how our economy is structured and it getting stronger. And that's something we have to pay attention to. It's not just an LA problem. It is a 
California crisis. It's a West Coast crisis. It's increasingly a global crisis. Um, but it's not something we just have to accept. I mean, we see places across the world and other cities that don't have, even in America, that don't have as serious of a homeless problem uh, or housing problem, um, not having the same inflow. So any place where you've seen the homeless count go down and keep going down or, or completely end homelessness, you will always find that their broader housing situation, it was either more affordable or they added rules and laws and things that made sure everyone had housing. And I think we're coming to that point where we have to consider how serious we are about ending homelessness and what that means for us about broader housing justice. There are great numbers of families who are becoming homeless, and I, I like to look at it as like there's a pipeline yeah. that has been in place for years mm-hmm. that is starting to manifest because yeah. of the disparities, the lack of resources, the wage that has yeah. not been Picking. given mm-hmm. uh, equitably. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to hear from you what your perspective is on the next critical steps Mm -hmm. to this path of reducing homelessness. Yeah. Ending homelessness, I think, comes down to two things. It's reducing inflow and increasing outflow. So that's a fancy way of saying helping people who are homeless today get off the street. So that's improving outflow. And we need to keep doing that. We can always do better, right? Um, Improving efficiency, of our system, improving the coordinated entry system. That means improving our shelter system to help make sure uh, they're not waiting rooms and people are waiting there forever. You know, how do we help people have housing location assistance and get out? Um, because that can improve. So I want to be very clear about all the work we have to do about that. But all of that improving outflow will always run into a wall if we don't reduce inflow. And so I think a lot of the work we have to really do right now and start laying the groundwork for is about the broader housing system. In LA, probably the state, um, because that has to be an important lever. We don't even, you know, we don't have to worry about the country. We can start here. I mean, we can, there's a lot we can do in the state with this governor. Like, we have goals right now. We have regional housing needs assessments that say how bad the housing crisis is. So we have a sense of how bad it is, um, but we kind of just accept that it's that bad. It's like, we're never going to build 500,000 units, right? It's like, okay, we just accept it. That's kind of where we started on the homeless front. We said, you know, of course, our support of housing gap is tens of thousands. We're never going to make a dent. Just accept it. But we changed that, and we feel like we can do the same thing. And sadly, this is the same to your question of what changed. Sadly, it's bad enough for enough people where I think people want to see some serious change on the broader housing side. So I think what that looks like is take those goals, make it more than academic exercise, create a new regional housing entity that really works on this issue day in and day out, has accountability on getting to that number. And how do we make housing a right? How do we make housing a right? And there are ways to do that. And it's not... It's not a fantasy. You know, we've engaged the Homeless Policy Research Institute. We've asked them how much that would cost if we did kind of a California housing voucher for everyone who has rent burden more than 70%. And the first figures back are not 
crazy numbers. You know, they're they're in the billions, but they're not above ten. It's a manageable figure, and that is the price tag for us keeping people in this terrible limbo state. And that's the cost of us living with this fear for us and our families and everyone we love. Of can we really afford to live here? And it's not worth it. If anyone told the state, you know, with six billion dollars, you can erase this constant thing we all wrestle with and the thing that keeps so many people less than human. Healthcare systems would write that check every day, over and over. And we have that option to create that kind of thing too. That puts a financial incentive for the state to improve that because it's like if housing is more affordable, that cost goes down. So we need something that gives us the paycheck and forces us to work on it, and says as long as it's that bad, we're paying that much as a consequence. And if it improves, we don't have to pay that anymore.、Um, so I think we need this kind of actor and also this voucher to keep us accountable to that to make housing right. I'll end with one story on that. When we were in Italy, many of us were in Italy, looking at the mental health system there, and a team from LA did an amazing presentation on people who are severely ill outside in Hollywood, and they shared pictures, they shared stories, and there was stunned silence in the room after the presentation. They had Q and A, and no one asked a question. It was just like Q and A and done, which was, I think, the first session where no one asked a question. And I remember being like, <laughs> "What are people think I've got to know?" And this is an international conference, so I tap. It ends. I tap the person's shoulder in front of me.、Um, he ends up being from. He and his wife are from Spain, and I'm like, "Hey, you know, what did you think?" And he kind of chuckles, which is my first like, "Huh, that's not what I thought." He chuckles and he said, "It's so easy, no?" That was what he said. He said, "Oh, it's so easy. It's a no-brainer. You just have to give them housing." <laughs> I remember being—I was like stunned because that same situation happens when we give presentations on homelessness here. There's a silence. There's kind of the stunned shock, but for a completely different reason. Here in America, people are stunned because we can't even imagine what to do. It's like we have forty thousand people outside. And five, six, seven hundred thousand people struggling with rent every day. Like, what do we do about that? Like, we can't even imagine fixing that and like paying to do that. It's like, well, what are we gonna do if people don't want to come inside? That's kind of the thought, and we feel so stuck. There, there was a stunned silence for the exact opposite reason. They felt like it was such an easy and like this man thought it was so simple. Like, why do we even need to talk about it? Like. Of course, if you give them housing, like that's solved. Like you wouldn't see these pictures, and I think we have to face that reality for ourselves. It is, it is solvable, and there's so much behind it. There's so much more than the housing. You know, there's the pain of racism and the historical nature of all of that we've done that's brought us here. But let's give ourselves a shot at working through those conversations by knowing that we can fix it. You know, we normally end the podcast by asking people about housing justice、mm. and what their vision of housing justice is. But you just said it:、uh, housing as a human yeah, right. Yes, you beat us to our last question. Yeah, yeah.、Um, so that's great to hear that that is you know something that we can really vision for the future. Yeah. Could I say one more thing though, which is that you know, Dr. King in his fight, it was always about. Um, the oppressed and the oppressor, right? It was always on both sides. And for me, housing justice 
really is for all of us. And homelessness and this housing crisis leaves us all being less than who we want to be. I think everyone feels terrible or at least very awkward about the situation we're facing. And both sides, when you walk by someone on the street, both sides don't know what to say or how to relate because it's such a foreign situation. Like, this should not be, you know? And I think people who are housed, at least at the beginning, all feel that the very same way. And we've all kind of lost what it means to be neighbors again. I think homelessness is an expression of that. We all go home and we watch Netflix and we're lonely inside, you know, people. It's a it's a bigger thing, you know. We we need to all learn what it means to be neighbors again. And I think this work of helping people um, come inside and and that process will teach us all how to reclaim that dignity and teach us all how to be neighbors again. And that's what housing justice means for me. That's a perfect ending. Thank you, Chris. So great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you both. We are closing today's episode with my poem, Morning of Tears. Morning of Tears. Thankfully, I was awakened to the sun shining in full capacity of my limbs. I actually physically felt fine. But as I repeatedly heard the phrase, good morning, I began to realize my lips were paralyzed by my thoughts. I really wanted to curse those saying, good morning, but that wouldn't be understood. So instead of returning with the good, I replied, morning, just for the sake of being left alone. I felt alone inside because no one knew of the morning this continuous pain I carried inside of my heart. My perception was dictated by memories of misunderstandings. Without sympathy or judgment, I needed to find peace. I walked between the crowds of people feeling invisible. The days flew by without me noticing. I couldn't even hear the birds chirping for the hunting sound of my morning drowning out anything pleasant. The sound even traveled into my sleep whispering to me, how did you get here? There's no way out. You will die here. I didn't want to believe it, thinking, when do I get to see the benefit of this torment? My view of life was ridiculous, heart-wrenching, nothing more than painful, time-consuming waste of space. The secrets from my childhood became a dark cave. Financial hardship, fear, anger, pride, every fault, every mishap, every discouragement, every disappointment, all the reasons why I should just die. I felt dizzy and distorted. My stomach muscles tightened as the devastation of my past fought to find an outlet. My sight dimmed until flashes passed my pupils. I screamed without a sound pleading for peace. My body went numb, and it seemed as if my veins were searching for blood. I felt the weakening of my lungs as they grasped for air. Confusion sunk into my flesh. My hands went cold and filled with sweat. The flashes came faster and faster before my eyes. I was lifted from myself, looking at my body laying stiff, curled in the fetal position. 
in a tube filled to the brim, still and calm surrounded by my fears, my shame, my reasons, my excuses. I heard the question, why me? We hope that you'll keep listening and subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please reach out by emailing us at housingjusticepodcast. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your questions and we will have a question and answer episode later in the season. So reach out and ask any question you have about homelessness in LA. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley. Molly Reisman. Bill Lance. New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Ann English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation.